Hello and welcome to episode 246 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Vienna, Virginia. This is Ben Olson. With me is Nathan Fox in Los Angeles. I'm in Los Angeles. Yep. And Daniel Schweitzer in San Francisco, I'm assuming? Yes, San Francisco. Awesome. So today on the show, we are going to have an interview, surprise, surprise, with Daniel. Um, he's a San Francisco-based bar exam tutor and uh, in lockdown, I'm assuming now, Daniel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we are going to, uh, I guess someone wrote in asking about our founding story, Nathan. I hope that's... Okay. Yeah, we love talking about ourselves, as, so no problem. Sure, yeah. Hopefully it's as uh, exciting as this listener <laughs> hopes it yeah. is. Um, okay, we have a question about inductive and deductive reasoning in logical reasoning. And we have an update from a listener who is apparently not paying for law school, which is always exciting. Yeah. This episode will air on Monday, May 18th, which is the same day that many of you will be taking the May LSAT Flex test. Uh, that test is going all week long, I guess. But some of you will be taking it today. Good luck. Friday, June 5th is the tentative May LSAT Flex score release date. So if you're taking the test today, well, you got three weeks and you might get your score back. Then on Sunday, June 14th, that's when the June LSAT Flex testing starts, or at least that week starts. I'm assuming it starts on that Monday, but anyways, sometime in mid-June, and then you'll get your scores on June 30th. Uh, as always, if you have questions, you can email the show at help at thinking LSAT. Send us your selfies. Leave us a, a review on iTunes. That always helps. And yeah, that's that. Let's jump in uh, with Daniel. Now, Nathan, you are the one who reached out to Daniel. I, I, I don't know the story there. but Yeah, so Daniel and I uh, became acquaintances, friends, I guess, in San Francisco. Shit, what's it been, Daniel? Six years? Something. You know, I was trying to, yeah, I was ballparking like five to seven years. Yeah, I I reached out to Daniel because he had awesome reviews on Yelp for uh for bar prep tutoring. And so I just wanted to have coffee with other people that were in the business in the in the city. So we met up for coffee and have just kind of been in touch since and it just struck me like why have we not had Daniel on the show because I'm sure listeners would love to hear about the bar. <laughs> Well, I appreciate your finally rectifying this grave injustice that yeah. you waited until episode 245 <laughs> or whatever it is to have me on. <laughs> We're just starting to figure things out right now, aren't we, Ben? We are, yeah, 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 as we speak, too. So, But seriously, thank you for having me on. It's nice to be with you guys this morning. Thanks for asking. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. And I, I did spring it as a surprise for Ben. Because uh, we didn't get it locked down <laughs> until yesterday, the day before we actually record the show. So, producer Annalisa, by the way, today is Annalisa's birthday. So, happy birthday, A dot. Annalisa uh, put it all on the agenda and everything, but Ben didn't see the email until like literally five minutes ago. So, uh. um, this is a surprise. Yeah, well, actually, I didn't see the email. You were just like, okay, Daniel's waiting in the uh, in the waiting room. We need to like get him in here. I'm like, huh? <laughs> who? What? <laughs> You know, Daniel, friend of a friend. Well, happy birthday, Annalisa. Yeah, yeah, she's great. So, Daniel, you are, uh, you've been teaching for the, I was just looking at your website and it says that you've oh, been. Oh, I'm sorry. No, <laughs> you're, you've been doing uh, exclusively California bar exam prep since 2005. I 
I'm sure you've seen a lot over those years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this was a, a bit of an accidental career. And whenever I, yeah. you know, I'm uh, interviewing with potential uh, clients and I, you know, tell them a bit about myself and I realize, oh, you know, I've been doing bar tutoring exclusively since 2005. It just strikes me like, okay, that's starting to sound like a long time ago. <laughs> and really, I got into this just, you know, accidentally. This was really just supposed to be a stopover on my way to um, what back then I considered a real job. But, you know, for whatever reason, I fell into um, education by happenstance and found that I uh, really enjoyed it um, and had a knack for it and felt really good about the work that I did. Um, and just, you know, after a couple of years, you realize, oh, maybe this is my real job. This is my career. Um, and so here we are, 2020. Um, and this is this is what I love to do. Talk about law school a little bit. Where did you go? I mean, I know, but you talk about where you went and uh, what you <laughs> thought you were going to do in law school? Uh, Sure. So um, I went to uh, UC Hastings in San Francisco. That's what uh, brought me up to San Francisco back in 2001. Um, And I came straight out of college uh, because I did not want to get a real job. So I had um, graduated college with a degree in math um, and didn't really know what to do with that degree. And I figured law school would buy me three more years until I needed to grow up. Wow. Um, So I ended up taking the LSAT probably in a very different way than uh, most of the people that are listening to your podcast, because I, I would imagine the people listening to your podcast are putting more forethought into this. Whereas I had just kind of procrastinated into my senior year of college and finally decided, well, I guess I'll just apply to law school. What's the worst that happens? And um, by the time I made that decision, I think I only had like a week until the last date I could take uh, the LSAT and apply for a fall admission. So it was kind of just very much, okay, quickly, got to get this thing together, go take the LSAT and see where the chips fall. Um, and so took the LSAT, did my law school applications, and um, Hastings was the best school that I had gotten into at the time. It uh, was a first-tier law school. I don't know what the rankings are these days. I know it's fallen a bit since then. But, um, you know, my strategy was just whatever is the top-ranked law school that I can get into, that's where I'm going. So I uh, moved up here um, to go to Hastings in 2001. And um, law school was probably the first time that I felt, I guess, academically challenged. Um, It was the first time that school didn't really come naturally to me. And so I didn't really take to it like a fish to water. A bachelor's in math wasn't hard? Well, math came very naturally to me. I've always been a numbers person. Calculus was like some of my favorite classes in college. Um, You should be working like for SpaceX, dude. What are you doing? (laughs) I I think I'd rather have me as a boss than Elon Musk, but (laughs) SpaceX is definitely doing um, more fascinating and cutting edge work than what I do. But, you know, I think I've wound up where I'm supposed to be. But I just didn't know that at the time. So yeah. I went to law school. I didn't really understand, you know, how to how to do it. Um, and so thankfully, Hastings had uh, what's called academic support program. So, you know, the name is pretty self-explanatory. So um, I started going to some of their workshops, learning how do you read a case um, in that's assigned in class? How do you brief it? How, what are some of the fundamentals of legal analysis? And through that, became very friendly with the people in academic support. And um, at the time, I figured, all right, I'll have my three years of law school, and I'll graduate and get some, you know, big paying job, make lots of money, and, and buy a BMW like that. 
that was my mindset. And I'm not exaggerating. Like buy a BMW was my status symbol. And the crazy thing is I was never a car person. I'm not a car person. Um, I didn't even get my driver's license until I was like 20 years old. But for some reason, like this idea of (laughs) buying a BMW was a symbol for like, you are rich. (laughs) Do you even have a car? You live in the city. Um, I do have a car. Um, so as it turns out, um, I did not have a car when I moved up here, but, uh, my husband at the time that we started dating and moved in, he had a BMW. So it all worked out (laughs) just fine (laughs) that I didn't need to go get that highfalutin job in order to get the BMW. And I loved, loved that car. It was a manual transmission. Um, and it was such a fun car. Hold on. Your husband's not a lawyer, is he? Oh God, no, that would be like a recipe for disaster. He's an engineer. It would be such a cliche uh, too, that you went to law school and got married to a guy with a BMW. That would be just like the perfect, um, but no, yeah, I think it's not too lawyers. No, I mean, being that this is the Bay area software engineer ends up being your most likely candidate for husband. True. Um, so, uh, no, so that, that car unfortunately died. And now we have a, um, Kia Nero plug-in hybrid that, um, is a very practical car. Um, and we charge it from our solar panels. Oh, wow. Very San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. Very San Francisco. So totally better than owning a BMW. Um, so well, hold uh, up. I, I have a manual <laughs> transmission BMW, so I have to know oh. what, uh-huh. what type you had. We had a 1996 318 Ti. It was a two-door hatchback. Oh. So very practical for the city, really easy to park on the streets, but the back seats folded down and you could get, you know, all kinds of lumber and couches and stuff into it. And learning to drive a manual transmission uh, in San Francisco was an interesting challenge, but it worked out great anytime I traveled to, you know, um, outside of the country, really, where um, renting um, a manual transmission car is a lot cheaper than renting an automatic. So came yeah. in handy. Cool. Yeah. Um, so, so that was how I had kind of gotten into law school. And that was my initial, uh, plan was to just become a rich corporate lawyer. But, um, some, uh, work experience that I had, um, helped me realize, thankfully, um, that that wasn't going to be the, uh, appropriate career for me. And so I had, uh, been working in a courthouse one summer, um, at the Vermont Supreme Court and absolutely loved that job. Um, I did a summer of corporate law that was not the right gig for me. And I did a semester of clinical work um, representing uh, an applicant for disability benefits in front of the Social Security Administration. And, uh, you know, of those three, I definitely enjoyed um, working uh, in the court the most. And uh, just to kind of go a bit out of order with advice for your listeners, I think one of the best things I did in law school was to get two or three very different legal experiences so that I could kind of just try a few different career, not careers, but a few different, um, jobs out just to see that there are many different ways to practice law and that you don't just have to go to a big law firm and, you know, slave away there. So during law school, I, I, um, you know, I was saying that I had found academic support to be very helpful for learning how to be, um, a successful law student. And through that, um, I ended up in my second year, uh, taking on a job that's basically like a TA for a first year class. And it was uh, torts. Okay. 
And so my job was, uh, I was a discussion group leader. And so you would have these weekly discussion groups to talk about the material that had been covered in the class and talk about some of the big cases. And, um, you'd have to come up with assignments and homework and exercises and whatnot. And it was through that work experience that I started to find that, um, I really enjoyed education and I really enjoyed, um, helping people learn. Yeah. That was your first, very first teaching experience. Uh, that's a good question. Um, because I, I think it was, um, I believe it was, I had done a little bit of math tutoring, um, when I was a high school student, but it was like really very little, um, tutoring. So yeah, the, the, the discussion group leader was really my first foray into teaching. Yeah. Totally accidental, right? Yeah, completely accidental. I had become very friendly with the people that, uh, that ran academic support and they were encouraging me to, you know, apply for this job. And it was really through that personal connection, um, and my own experience of having been on the other side of, um, of the discussion group situation that, uh, that I got into education and tutoring. Cool. So, um, after I graduated law school, I was having trouble finding the job that felt right for me, um, but student loan payments were coming due, which is an experience that I'm sure many of your listeners have just from undergraduate school um, and will also continue to have to a much greater degree um, should they go to law school. Not our listeners. (laughs) They're steered away. They're not paying for law Um, school. It's our tagline. (laughs) Don't pay for law school. Get scholarship. Yes. So I just kind of fell into education. Um, there was funding for a position at Hastings um, for a six-month position to help develop a curriculum um, to teach third-year law students who were um, doing poorly academically in law school and would therefore be statistically least likely to pass the bar. And so the goal of this project was to review um, about 20 years' worth of released California bar exam essays and their answers to identify um, how does the bar exam test legal ideas? What are the types of issues that get tested frequently? What are the qualities and characteristics of what the bar exam releases as a model answer? And then how do you teach uh, students who are struggling in law school um, the skills that they would need to hopefully then pass the bar? Hmm. Um, and that, uh, position working at Hastings just became a very natural, um, segue into, um, tutoring. And so, uh, I frequently refer to my tutoring as uh, the accidental career because, you know, the first time I tutored, I tutored a student. Um, and then the bar exam happened, uh, in February of 2005. And then there were a few months where, people are waiting for their bar results. So there's really, you know, very little to almost no work to do until early May when the results come out, the results came out. Um, and then, uh, I got referred to a few more students. So then, then for the next exam, I had three students. So I worked with those students and then they took the exam at the end of July. And then there was no work at all for August, September, October, November, you know, so then I'm just kind of sitting around the house and, you know, gardening and playing video games and just enjoying my time off and thinking, wow, I wonder what I'm going to do when I get a real job. And I think it was maybe this, the third year, the second or third year that I was tutoring that um, some of the people that I had tutored and had passed had started referring uh, their friends to me. And I realized, oh, wow, this could you know actually become a, an actual job and a career. Uh, and so that was how I got into uh, my line of bar tutoring. 
All right, now we have to do a sidebar on what type of video games you play. <laughs> um, I like uh, action games, adventure games, open world games. Um, Speaking really my language. First person shooters. Yeah, I'm not really into first person shooters because I um, have just never really been good at them. But uh, Destiny 2 and Far Cry 5 um, definitely sank their hooks into me. Nice. Um, yeah. So that's that's mostly what I play. Some puzzle games sometimes when I feel like thinking, but usually I just feel like being lazy. Xbox, PlayStation? Uh, PlayStation 4 and Nintendo Switch. Are you going to play The Last of Us Part 2 when it comes out? Oh, yeah, completely. I loved The Last of Us 1. Me too. Um, I thought it was a phenomenal game. And um, one of, you know, like most video gamers, I have a huge backlog of video games that I've bought on sale or clearance and just never gotten around to playing. <laughs> and one of the things that's on my list is the um, the story DLC, the downloadable content for the first Last of Us that follows um, the female protagonist sort of, um, I think it's before. I think it's like a prequel yeah, to it's it. Great. So I still haven't played it. It's sitting on my PlayStation oh. 3. It's the only reason I can't get rid of my PlayStation 3. And so my goal is to um, finish that before the next game comes out, um, I think in June. Yep. They've Well, they've delayed it a million times, but now it's the most recent delay is until June. So yeah, yeah you, got, you got to get cracking. It's great. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we'll have to meet up sometime online and play something. Sure. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, all right. So we could get back to business, I suppose. Um, if we must, <laughs> what, uh, what advice? Well, let's see. Did we get to the founding of your business? I mean, you're, you're tutoring a few people now. How does this t- become a full-time gig? You, you graduate, decide not to be a lawyer, start tutoring. Yeah. So I graduated, decided, uh, you know, I found that, that the lawyer jobs I was hoping for, I wasn't finding. And I had started, uh, the tutoring and, um, it was really uh, that Eureka moment was when someone called me that I had never, you know, reached out to or advertised or anything. She said, my friend worked with you for the last bar exam and you got her past the bar. I would like to work with you also. And that's when I realized, Oh, okay. This thing might actually have legs. And so, that was when I kind of realized, okay, this could actually be my job. Um, so that was maybe about 12 years ago. So it, it, you know, it was the first few years. I wasn't really sure if this is, uh, if this was, um, what I was going to do. Um, and I actually had a really, uh, it was a really rough time, um, around, I think like 2007, 2008. Um, I wasn't really sure if I was going to continue with this job. Um, anxiety is something that I have, you know, had present in my life for as long as I can remember. And I wouldn't say that, um, I wouldn't say it, you know, overtakes my life. And I think the vast majority of people have anxiety in their lives, whether or not they're aware of it. But, um, you know, uh, I always thought it was odd that me as someone who, you know, is prone to anxiety and anxious thinking would wind up being self-employed where so much of your job is kind of out of your hands as far as, you know, are people going to contact me? Will people hire me? Will this whole, you know, job just um, implode? Except that, you know, when you work for someone else, you have the illusion of security, but it's actually less that is secure. Very true. <laughs> right? I mean, yes. they can just call you into their office and say, hey, today's your last day of work. Yeah, that's true. And it, yeah, I mean, I've seen it happen to friends of mine. So you're absolutely right. Ben, did you have that kind of same anxiety when you started strategy? Did you, did you were like worry? Oh my God, what happens if it all dries up? Oh, for sure. I don't, I don't think that went away until very recently. 
Yeah, like in the last year or so, right? <laughs> it feels yeah. like, okay, this might actually have legs. <laughs> I don't know. Wait, I think I slept all last night. Whoa, what's going on here? <laughs> so I have a question then. Since one of your um, listeners asked about the starting of the business and we talked a little bit about me, I'm curious um, for you two how you started your own businesses and how much they parallel each other or or don't. Yeah, I don't know your story that well, Ben. I, I, I started mine while I was in law school, also at Hastings, as you know, Daniel. And um, just by the time I graduated in 2011, I, I, I had enough students that it was like, well, I can make a living doing this and I don't have any job <laughs> prospects, obviously, coming out of Hastings in 2011. Um, so I just kind of did it by accident and then I just kept going. And Ben, you're... Hmm. Yeah, I was uh, I was uh, working for a professor, law professor from GW. Well, he was an adjunct professor, but he had his own business uh, going to law firms, um, teaching attorneys how to write, uh, all the way from summer associates up to partners. And I enjoyed working for him, but honestly, it kind of came down to the money. I was like, wait a sec he's the owner of this business and he's getting a huge chunk of this money. What if I owned my own business? And I, I couldn't go into legal writing consulting cause I didn't have the, well, I, in my mind, I didn't have the experience or the, I don't know, the qualifications to maybe do what he was doing at these, at these firms. But in any case I said, well, I can, I did well on the LSAT. I could start teaching that. And so I just started uh, to see what would happen. How did you start? And I remember I reserved, I was debating whether I should rent space in Arlington, Virginia or Washington, DC. Arlington was closer to where I lived and DC was more expensive and a little bit further away. But I don't know. I just kind of decided, um, I guess DC is more of a hub. I should go there. And I think that was the best decision I ever made. I mean, that's a little ridiculous, actually. But it was a good decision because I rented some space and I got this office area and I, I started a website because I had done web development a little bit in college. So I created this website and put up this whole course and someone signed up for it, one person. <laughs> and he shows up the first day of the class and he's like, uh, is this class? I was like, <laughs> yep, this is it. And then like sometimes, you know, we had like 10 or 12 classes. I don't remember how many I had scheduled. Sometimes he wouldn't come and I'd be like, okay, well, that's a date. <laughs> <laughs> he knew he was the only student in class and sometimes he would just not show up. He wouldn't even yeah. like tell you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think he was kind of like, um, kind of a crazy person you know, for signing you, up for well, your get the, new class that never even existed before. Yeah, well, that's a little crazy too, right? I guess I don't know how how what what he did to decide to sign up for my class, but he signed up, and it, I mean, it, it was a lifesaver because it's what's what kept things going, right? And then the next class had three people. I do remember that, and the next class after that had seven. So it was going in the right direction. Yeah, and so I just kept doing it, and I remember it was just. If, it's weird. If, it felt like it, it has never stopped. I, I remember it kept, I kept thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to create materials for this class, and then once I have these materials created, I'll be done creating materials, and it won't be so hard to do this class. But it's like 
I don't know. I mean, it's definitely gotten easier over time as the materials have solidified, but it, it seems like that process never ended. It's it's like you create a whole set of materials for the class and then you realize how they could be better and then you start working on them again. And it's just constant, you know, change and growth and moving forward. I don't know. I always had the sense that it would just kind of stop sometime, but I don't think it will ever. <laughs> yeah. How's How's your business, Daniel? Business had been, you know, going fantastic gangbusters for the last like five to seven years. But the current situation with COVID-19 has, you know, changed everything. And, you know, I had always kind of thought that my line of work was somewhat recession proof that, you know, as long as people were going to law school and graduating and as long as the California bar was still being administered, there would be people who uh, would want or need my services. But the bar exam has, for the first time in its history, been postponed. So the California bar exam um, is administered twice a year, uh, once at the end of February and once at the end of July. And it has been on this schedule for decades. Um, And so uh, a few, uh, I think maybe about a month ago, um, a little under a month ago, um, the California bar, like most other state bars, though not all of them, uh, about a month ago, the California State Bar said, okay, we're going to postpone the upcoming July bar exam to September 9th and 10th. So they pushed it back. It's something like six or seven weeks, which was the first time they've ever done that. And additionally, they said that they are planning to administer the bar exam online. They haven't said that they will definitely do it, but um, they've said they are going to do their best to figure out how to administer it online. And that would also be the first time because um, historically the July bar exam would have anywhere, I think it's up to like 8,000 people, I want to say, that take the bar exam throughout the state in July. And um, the exam is normally administered in very large testing environments at um, convention centers and hotel conference rooms where uh, you'll be in a room with like 400 other people who are all taking this test at the same time um, over a two-day span. So the the Bar Administration had announced that they were going to make all efforts to administer the exam online. Um, The exam consists of uh, one day of six and a half hours of writing and a second day of six hours of multiple choice. And um, the writing is uh, authored and um, created by the California Bar Administration, and the multiple choice is created by the National Council of Bar Examiners. So the 200 multiple choice questions that students take is the same across the entire country, which is similar to the LSAT, right? Like every student across the country that sits for a certain administration takes the exact same test. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, there's just one LSAT. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so with the um, with the uh, multiple choice portion of the exam, everybody across the country takes the same test. So, the NCBE has also said that they are going to try to figure out how to give it online, but still nobody really knows. So, um, one thing they did was they changed by pushing the exam back. And the second really big thing is they said we'll probably give it online. We don't know yet, but you know, watch this space for announcements. And um, I think that a lot of uh, people who are considering taking the bar exam are feeling uh, first a bit apprehensive um, about being that first class of students who takes the exam that's administered online um, as opposed to in person. And then there's also, I would think, a lot of people who feel like maybe they have a bit more breathing room than normal um, because usually 
bar results will come out in early May, and then the next exam is 10 to 11 weeks later. But now all of a sudden, it's like 17 weeks later. So I think that there are other people who are saying, you know, I don't really need to decide right away what to do. You know, I can wait a month, a month and a half um, just to see how this whole thing plays out with the bar uh, announcements are the about bulk, how they'll administer these. That makes me think that the bulk of your clients are retakers because they were like waiting for result. They've got a gap, right, between their mm-hmm. failed result and then the retake. Yes, that's uh, correct. The vast majority of students I work with have taken the exam um, at least once before. Uh, that changes a little bit between the summer exam and the winter exam. So for the summer exam in July, um, a lot of, you know, there is a fair number of those students that will come directly from graduating law school um, and will hire a tutor for their first bar administration. And if that's the case, those are the students who would take the July exam. But um, still, the majority of my July students are repeaters. When they do that, do those students also take Barbary or whatever, or do they just do you? Um, for the first time test takers. Mm -hmm. So, uh, those students will typically be concurrently enrolled in a commercial bar prep program, but that's usually because they had signed up for it either in their first or second year of law school before they had even considered bar tutoring. Mm. Um, the commercial bar programs, you know, they do a great job of getting people into their program. Um, and they've come up with some very smart marketing strategies such as increasing the cost every year, but they let you lock in the price if, you know, for the year you sign up. So as a first year, if you put down your non-refundable, you know, whatever deposit of $200 or $300, you lock in your price so that two years later when it's more expensive, you're paying the price from two years earlier. That seems like a a real dumb thing for a 1L to do. (laughs) Well, I mean, think about it. You're a first year law student. You kind of have no idea what to expect. Um, And for a lot of people, law school is the first time that they struggle academically. Um, I see that with a lot of students who come to me that they say, you know, look, I breezed through high school. I never studied in college, but all of a sudden like law school and the bar exam was the first time that I really struggled. And, uh, you know, these big programs come in and they say, look, everybody takes this. And, you know, uh, this number of students take our, uh, take our program and pass. And so you're going to do it anyway. So you may as well just give us 200 bucks to lock it in. It's so dumb though. Cause it's $200 today for a discount on a product that you might want to purchase in the future. And they pretend like literally every single person, you know, of the, they're like, well, all the one you all are going to end up taking bar prep eventually. But how many people go to law school and don't finish or how many people go to law school finish, but decide they don't want to practice law? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, those are really good questions and really good points. I, it's just, I don't know. Just trying to lock in a discount now for a product three years from now just seems like that is a great, <laughs> it's a great marketing scheme. Like good job, Barbary. But I, I can't imagine that that's actually a good investment. Like, so what if it costs you a little bit more? You also retained, your $200 for that entire time. And in the meantime, and, yeah. And now you are able to still choose between competing bar products instead of like just, Oh no, well I'm, I'm locked into Kaplan or whatever from three mm-hmm. years ago. That's, that's don't do that. I'll, that's my advice. Don't, don't sign up for those programs. You're one L year. I, I wholeheartedly second that advice Great. to wait until your third year of law school to figure out what you want to do for bar. Prep. And if you're even going to take the bar, I mean, there's lots of people that go to law school and don't practice. So mm-hmm. Nathan, 
What are we going to do about our all our marketing programs to freshmen in college? I mean, <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Everyone does the LSAT demon. If you, I mean, you're going to law school for sure, right? I know you're 18, but um, sign up now and lock in a $25 discount. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So. Uh, I don't remember the question. Oh, I think you were asking about um, what's going on right now with the business. So, um, you know, so right now um, business is uh, definitely slower than it normally would be. And, you know, I, I think it's just because of this whole weird coronavirus situation um, because it's never been like this, you know, in for the last like 10, but, 15 years. So you're going to have to speculate, I suppose, but you think they are going to offer it just not in July or they are going to offer it in July online? Well, it's definitely not going to be in July. The They have already committed to holding it September 9th and 10th. Okay. All right. But uh, as far as whether it's online or in person, uh, we don't know. I mean, given the way that things have been going um, in California with a very um, cautious and methodical approach to, um, you know, reopening life, I can't imagine they're going to hold the bar exam the way that they used to, right? They're saying, don't expect large gatherings to happen in 2020. And I would think 400 students masked in a large (laughs) testing room counts as a large um, gathering. So, you know, theoretically, they could change the administration and say, okay, we're going to set up um, big spaces where everybody is seated 10 feet apart from each other. But if you're trying to do that for thousands and thousands of people, it can become cost prohibitive for the bar administration to then reserve that many ballrooms and that many, you know, uh, conference centers to host people. So I, I think they're going to try to, um, do this online. They have said that, um, next month in June, they'll be administering what's called the first year law students exam, the FYLSE. It's also sometimes called the baby bar. Um, so this is an exam that, uh, a small, percentage of law students need to take either because um, the school they're going to isn't accredited or um, because they have uh, been academically disqualified from continuing law school after their first year. So this first year law students exam is administered a few times throughout the year and it's to a much smaller population than the bar exam. Um, And it's only, I believe it's only a one day test. So that is going to be administered in June. And the state bar has said that they are going to make every effort to give that exam online and use that as sort of a um, training grounds to just kind of cut their teeth, so to speak, on online exam administration and figure out the kinks and, you know, will this work for a larger group of students? And how do we handle things like internet reliability and cheating and webcams and bathroom breaks? And so I think we'll know a lot better um, after the first year law students exam in June, what the state bar is planning to do for September. Typically uh, people who graduate from law school um, immediately start their bar prep for that July bar. And what do they study really hard for two months? Yeah. So typically uh, most students will um, graduate from a three-year program sometime in uh, early May. And they will then typically go immediately into bar prep within typically um, a few days to a week after commencement. And then they will study like they've never studied before um, for about 10, it's usually about 10 or 11 weeks um, leading up to the bar exam. And the way that I like to describe it is that 
you know, if you think about when you've been in college or law school or anytime you're in a challenging academic environment and you needed to um, prepare for, let's say, four final exams that would all be administered within a one to two week period. And now take that experience and imagine what it would be like if you were studying for like 13 or 14 final exams and they were all going to be administered within two days of each other. (laughs) And that's what the bar exam is like. Oh, and by the way, if you don't pass this final exam, um, you're not going to get a license and you can't practice law for at least another six months. Very high stakes test. So I'm, I'm curious about, it sounds like people are now procrastinating for this upcoming September bar. If it was the July bar, they would be like getting ready to go into full bust your ass mode. Possibly. So this is definitely speculation on my part. Um, but I, I do think that's a little bit of what's happening. I mean, it's human nature, I suppose, but is it really the best way to study for the bar to do it on a crash schedule? I mean, what do you advise retakers? Cause you, you work with mostly retakers. Mm-hmm. Do you, how long do, the, do they have again between when the results come out and then the, the actual test? Uh, so it's different between uh, the two exams, uh-huh. oddly enough um, for the summer exam. There is typically um, 10 to 11 weeks between when they release the results and when the next exam is administered. Whereas for the winter administration, the results are posted in mid-November uh, before Thanksgiving. And the next exam is usually 13 weeks later at the end of February. So it's a bit longer Whoa, of a gap. Why does it take so long to grade bar exams? Um, well, I would imagine part of it is because they have 8,000 students who have submitted six written exams each that they would have spent, you know, an hour to an hour and a half writing each one of those exams. So, and they you know, just you're don't talking have about enough. what, 48,000 hours of grading, uh, or 48,000 hours of writing that then needs to be graded. Um, and then after, <laughs> just give it to a law professor, time. it would take no time at all. <laughs> just put some check marks <laughs> on the page and hand it out. Yeah. Check, 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 pass. Um, so, you know, they not only need to do that first pass of, um, grading, they then also, uh, need to, um, they work with statisticians and I think the word is psychometricians or psychometricians that basically, um, you know, I, I think they apply the fields of psychology and statistics to exams, um, as part of making sure that any differences in degree of difficulty from one exam to the next can be balanced out so that, you know, you can't have students say, Oh, well, this one exam in February of 2019 was objectively harder than the exam you gave six months ago. Um, so, you know, they need time on the back end to review all the numbers and statistics and, you know, figure all that out. And then, Um, so the way the bar exam is graded, it's, uh, scaled out of 2000 points, zero to 2000. And, uh, most people will, will score somewhere between 1200 and, you know, like 1600, maybe 1500, probably more like 1500. And, uh, for students who, uh, score over 1440 out of 2000, they pass. But then there's this other group of people who score between 1390 and 1440. So it's people who have, uh, failed, um, on the first scoring, but have only failed by a margin of 50 points. Those students will have all of their written exams read for a second time and given a new grade by a new grader. Um, and then their two scores from the first grader and the second grader are averaged. 
and they run your scores again to see whether you pass. So you also need time for all these people to have their exams read now a second time. Is it blind or does the new grader know that they're part of the like regrading committee? Uh, I do not know the answer to that question. Um, that is a good mm. question, um, but I don't know the answer. I would just like to know how many of the people make it through, like, through that regrade process. That it would be fascinating to know those numbers. Um, so with the bar exam, if you pass, they just tell you that you passed and that's it. Um, it's actually a very um, uh, you know sedate experience right. from their end telling you you passed the bar. You go to a website, you type in your uh, name and number, and if you passed it just pops up a little message that says uh, the following name appears on the pass list. And it's, you know, this totally like passive announcement that you passed. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, wait, I worked my butt off for two months and I've been sitting on pins and needles for four months and you're going to deliver me this news in a passive tense? Like you can't even <laughs> say it actively that I passed. It has to be that the name appears on the, yeah. So, um, so if you pass, it's, you know, th- there's no like balloons or confetti or spotlight. Um, if you don't pass, then they tell you your scores. So for the students who pass, you don't know whether you passed by, you know, a margin of 0.3 points or whether you passed by 100 points. So there's really never any way to know, okay, did I make it through on that first try or did I make it through on the second try? So strange. I get- that, that reminds me of Virginia. Virginia, I, I don't know if this is the same process. It sounds like California is a little more... Uh, secretive about who passes, but for Virginia, they just list everyone who passed on a web page. And so someone else actually told me that I passed. Said, <laughs> I saw your name on the website. I was like, oh, <laughs> that's good to know. I don't know if I actually ever went to the website to confirm that. Um, so. <laughs> so yeah, California does something similar. So California will um, make the results available to the applicants individually on a Friday at 6 p.m., um, although this year I think it was at 5.55 PM. So some of the phone calls started coming in before six, but, um, on Sunday morning at 6 AM. So basically a day and a half later, they then post a list of every person who passed. Um, and that list hmm. stays up for some number of weeks and then they take it down. You have those days blocked off on your calendar, Daniel, like you just know you're going to get inundated. Mm hmm. Yeah, those are the days where it's like, okay, definitely whatever type of vacation you're planning, be home before this So date. tell me hmm. what these conversations are like with people who are contacting you for the first time uh, the day that they found out that they failed the bar. Sure. So um, it's a mix. Some of them are surprised. Um, some students will say, look, you know, I don't get it. I did fine in school. Um, you know, I felt okay coming out of the bar exam. I worked my butt off. I was studying for like 10, 12 hours a day and, and I failed and I just don't understand why. So for some students, there's a bit of, um, disbelief. Uh, and then for other students, it's just, they're sort of resigned to acceptance very quickly, which I think is, you know, quite admirable that, you know, like I said, like I was saying earlier, for many people, this is this exam is the first time they find themselves uh, struggling academically. And, you know, some people will just be able to look at it and say, OK, this sucks. Um, this is not what I was expecting, but I am determined to get past this. Which one of those two types has the better rate of uh, passing on the second attempt? The latter. The one who was just like, yep, I knew I was going to fail. 
Uh, I wouldn't say the students who say, yup, I knew I was going to fail. I would say it's more about the attitude looking forward. So, you know, for, for the students who are like, uh, you know, who just really struggle to get past the bad news and kind of dwell on the bad news and how could this have happened? And, mm, um, you know, while on I the see. one hand, I understand, you know, that feeling of, uh, of disappointment, um, it ends up being somewhat counterproductive, you know? So some people go through this process and feel like, okay, this is, you know, I've already done all this. I know all of this. Um, you know, this exam is stupid. Why do I have to do this? I think those students have a really hard time changing the habits they need in order to show the bar exam, what the bar is looking for. Whereas the students who just kind of roll up their sleeves and say, okay, this is a crappy situation. Um, I must, you know, there must've been some disconnect between what I meant to do and what I actually did. Can you teach me how to close, you know, that gap? Those are the students that will typically do best. When you were talking about that first group, I mean, we could take exactly what you said and just transplant it to a frustrated LSAT student. I've I've heard that so many times from people who say, I don't understand why my scores are where they're at. I've been studying, you know, X number of hours per day, per week for the last six months. And there's almost this sense, like, they're not necessarily coming out and saying it. Sometimes they do. But there's this sense that they're like – there's something wrong with the test as opposed to something wrong with me because they're just like, look, it's like they're providing this defense. This is all I've done. I did well in school. So therefore the mistake must be elsewhere. And as long as you think it is, even if it is, you're never going to, make the changes that you need to make to adapt to that. Yeah. I don't like hearing from students that say, um, I mean, some, maybe they just do it reflexively and they're not really thinking about it, but the student who says, well, this test is really not a good, this this doesn't define whether I'll be a, a, you know, a good lawyer. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't come down to a test. And it's like, well, yeah, but it does come down to a test and you're going to have to get past this test (laughs) and you bitching about the test. It doesn't change. Yeah, it doesn't change the situation on the ground. Um, I see something similar with uh, attorney applicants. So in order to practice law in California, you need to, you know, have a license in California. So if you're an attorney licensed in, let's say, Washington State, you can't come and practice in California except in, you know, limited circumstances or for temporary uh, circumstances that you can get limited permission. So if that attorney wants to relocate their practice and, and uh, practice law here in California, they will need to pass the California bar. And for a lot of these applicants, they have that sort of mentality of, okay, this exam is supposed to be the gatekeeper to, you know, um, functioning, practicing law. Uh, and so since I've had this totally successful career elsewhere, this exam should be a breeze. And theoretically, yeah, that line of thinking makes sense. And then they, you know, go and take, they study for like two weeks and they take the exam and they fail and they're like, okay, what just happened? How could this happen? Like, I've got a career. I know how to be a lawyer. Why is the California bar saying I can't be a lawyer? And there's always that, you know, discussion I have to have with them that says, okay, the things that served you well in practice with getting clients, working with clients, um, you know, working with co-counsel, drafting your briefs, those aren't necessarily going to translate to success on the bar. And you need to learn how to, um, you know, change your approach to writing and analysis for what the bar exam wants, not what you've learned a judge would want. 
It's right? not a, it's a test. It's not a test of how to practice law. It's a it's a hoop that you have to jump through to practice law in California. Exactly. It's a, it's, it's a test protectionism. Of, it's a test of taking the bar, right? Like that's really all it is is do you know how to take the bar exam? Right. Um and that's, you know, I think what finally happens for the students who pass on their second or third or fourth or fifth try is they stop, you know, trying to um do it the way that they think needs to be done and they just sort of um, submit to the process and say, okay, the bar exam wants me to do X, Y, and Z. That's what I'm going to do, regardless of whether I think that's the best way to approach it. If this is what the bar exam wants me to show them, that's what I'm going to show them. Amen. Na na. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Cool. Did we cover all the stuff? I, I was hoping to talk about, yeah, students who are successful, students who are not successful. Oh, let me ask you this. What about a student who fails the second time? Is there, or the student who fails the third time? How do you know where to, when to stop and when to keep going? Um, so that's a, an interesting question. I actually, um, you know, if I had my choice of, working with students who have failed at once versus students who have failed at three times, I would actually prefer to take the student who's failed at three times. Wow. Um, partly because I feel that is a person who is more in need of help, but also partly because the people who have failed it uh, just once and go to take it the second time sometimes um, have a bit more of like an outsized anxiety about the test um, because they've already gone and not passed it that first time going to take it the second time. That reality has sort of hit of like, okay, this could happen again. Um, whereas for the third, you know, someone who's failed two or three times, um, I think some of the mystique of the exam, um, has, has dissipated. Um, and some of the anxiety has, uh, dissipated a bit. Um, and so I think those students are a bit, um, less anxious about the test, but that's just sort of my own druthers in terms of, um, so what's the most, what's the highest number of times that one of your students has failed the bar exam like you've worked with someone and they've failed uh, it and passed yes <laughs> sure both, both uh, ways both ways yeah so um i think the most time somebody has taken it um and not passed uh was i want to say eight and that student uh did not pass again and for the most times taking it uh and not passing and then passing after working with me i believe the student was on his seventh try <laughs> and um when he passed, when he called me to tell me that he passed the exam, he was just, you know, crying these tears of relief. And he was telling me that he had had this bottle of champagne in his refrigerator for like three years, yeah. um, waiting to drink it. And that when he called his parents to tell them the news that they didn't even believe him at first, they thought he was just pranking them. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so, so six times, um, and then passing it on the seventh. And I was, I was thrilled. Are you, is he practicing now? I have not, uh, looked, I should go check. Yeah. Um, yeah, I should go check. This is a, a few years ago, but it, you know, it's just, it, it feels great to get that phone call. That's part of what's kept me, um, in this line of work for so long is feeling like I'm helping people achieve their goals and move on in their careers. Um, and I can genuinely say that I feel good about the, um, work that I do and the results thereof. Um, so I just, I love getting those phone calls and then, you know, there's the phone calls of the people that didn't pass and I don't, you know, I'm not as 
happy about those calls, uh, obviously, but, you know, I appreciate, um, people giving me the chance to help them, um, to help them along. Do you have any advice for people who, uh, you know, see themselves taking the bar exam in three years, what they can do to prepare for it more effectively so that they don't have to take it again, hopefully, and maybe, Oddly enough, don't have to hire someone like you. Yeah, they sure. Just nail it. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the first is uh, go to the best school. Uh, I shouldn't say the best school. Um, when you're choosing which law school to go to, uh, I would place a strong emphasis on the bar exam pass rate um, because that is, even though rudimentary, it is a data point that will give you some idea of um, how well is this school preparing its students to take and pass this exam. Um, because if your goal is to um, practice law, you've got to pass the test. And so if there's a, you know, if you're choosing between two schools, one of them has a 52% pass rate and the other one has a 68% pass rate. Um, I would very, very strongly consider the second school over the first because they are hopefully doing a much better job of preparing students for the exam. Hold on, um, hold on and, a second though, Daniel. Isn't a lot of that just a selection bias effect? I mean, compare the student who gets into Berkeley and gets into Hastings and Hastings offers them a full ride. That person's mm-hmm. not a risk to fail the bar exam if they go to Hastings. They're still the same person. Right. So certainly the people that get into higher ranked schools are probably going to be students who do better on tests and are, you know, just historically have a stronger academic record. So those are people that are more likely to pass. But also, I think there's got to be some part of it, um, some part of that data that's telling you, is this school doing a good job of um, requiring people to have these skills? Right. Because at least in theory, in a functioning academic environment, Um, you know, part of the role of law school of the law school is to um, teach you and train you to do well with legal analysis and legal writing and understanding uh, the law. But part of a law school, a functioning law school's job should also be to be weeding out people first that shouldn't be going, you know, that shouldn't be at that law school in the first place. But then also, as they're completing the first year, the second year, it should be, you know, have some built in checks to say, okay, does this person have enough knowledge and skills to get out of the first year and go into the second year? Does this person need academic intervention? You mentioned the baby bar earlier. What would you think about all one L's having to take the baby bar? I think that would be a very interesting idea. I think that, you know, it would probably need to be um, connected somehow to the ideas that you guys have talked about earlier about, you know, do you even want to take the bar, right? Because maybe there's some people that are going to law school because they want the education or because they want to better understand the law or because, um, you know, for whatever their reason is, but they don't necessarily want to practice. Right. That's an interesting um, caveat. Sure. I mean, you have to take the baby bar if you want to take the bar upon graduation. mm -hmm. I I guess what Uh, I'm getting at is there are many schools who you said that law schools do like a filtering process, you know, they're supposed to be kind of weeding out in advance for people who are going to be capable of eventually passing the bar and practicing law. And some schools just have a broken filter, right? The, mm-hmm. the golden gates of the world, um, you know, not to single out any school, but the type of school, the, that type of ranking, I mean, what's their bar passage rate these days? Do you happen to know? Uh, I don't know. I don't know their bar passage rate. No. Okay. Let's say it's uh, 40%. I think that might be 
generous at some, sometimes uh, certain bar exams, I think they're less than that. But if they're, you know, if their bar passage rate for the school is 40%, then, you know, they know going in that half the class is not going to pass the bar. It's like, this isn't new. It's always been like this. So, or it's been like this for a decade. So they're, they've got the broken filter, right? Mm-hmm. I guess my, what I'm saying is if, if you also got into a higher ranked school though, and you decided to take that scholarship at a lower ranked school, I don't really think that hurts your bar passage chances. So, yeah, I mean, you guys have uh, an interesting and different perspective, right? That um, for you, you're looking at uh, also the financial decision of going to law school, which, um, you know, is not something that I sort of had have taken into account um, in, in this advice. But, um, you know, if you get a full scholarship at a lower ranked school, if you're academically strong enough to have acquired that um, scholarship, then hopefully you are more likely to be part of that 40 percent who would pass on the first right. go. But, um, you know, you also, I think, do need to consider what is the staff to student ratio? Um, what are the classes like? And, you know, is this going to be an academically rigorous enough um, situation that uh, they will be preparing me for the bar and they will be teaching me these skills that, that are going to be tested? Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that law school does no bar prep at all. I just think that the, mm-hmm. the bar prep, I mean, there is bar preparation going on at every school. They, they, they care about their bar passage rates. They have to, right. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just, I, I think that that selection bias up front is a super powerful effect. Obviously. Yeah. If money is no, if, if, if you don't care about how much you're going to pay to go to law school, then probably the easiest way to guarantee yourself, you know, just go to the best school you can get into. And then there's at least mm-hmm. like, well, I don't know if you're going to go at all costs, then there is a best school you're going to get into. And I don't know at that point, I guess what people, maybe the thing we probably could agree on this, Daniel, is that if you barely squeak into a school, their bar passage rate is, you know, that's kind of like a good proxy for your bar passage rate, maybe on the low side of their bar passage Mm -hmm. rate. If you barely got in, if that's the best school you got into, then, you know, and their bar passage rate is 70%, but you barely squeaked in, then I don't know. You might have a lower than 70% chance. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's possible. Um, you know, uh, when I, um, took the LSAT, so, um, I had taken the LSAT and, uh, scored definitely lower than I had anticipated scoring based on, you know, just experience with previous, um, standardized tests. And, uh, so my LSAT score, um, was lower than I had hoped. And, uh, Hastings was the best school that I, that I could get into at the time. And, and my LSAT did put me, um, towards the bottom of that, uh, incoming average LSAT score. And so looking at, you know, if I had been looking at that on the way in, I would have thought, uh Oh, you know, I'm coming into the school and I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be, uh, down here at the bottom. Um, but thankfully, uh, I, you know, once I was in school, I was able to recognize that I was struggling that first semester and, uh, Hastings had the resources available for someone like me who was struggling and needed help to figure out how to work law school. And, um, I was then successful by being able to access those resources, learn how to be, um, a successful law school student. And that did a good job of preparing me for the bar so that I could pass on the first try. That must have been quite a relief. Were you worried about it or no? Um, I think there was a little bit of um, 
<laughs> hubris again, uh, that I had just figured, you know what? I, I think I graduated law school with like a B plus average. Um, so my first semester was really not all that great, uh, to be honest. But by the time I had graduated, I was scoring pretty solidly B pluses and A's. And then, you know, I took my bar prep program. I did everything I was told to do. I, you know, stuck to a very, uh, rigorous schedule and I had been doing quite well on the practice exams leading up to the bar. Um, so when I went to take it, I did, um, expect to pass. It didn't really occur to me that there might be a chance that I wouldn't pass until, the night that results posted, <laughs> yeah. right? And that's when the, when the possibility sank in of, oh, wait, this might not turn out the way I thought it would. And I remember I was in um, Las Vegas for um, my sister's wedding. And um, this was back in 2004. And uh, so, you know, I didn't have a smartphone, um, so I couldn't just check results on my phone. And um, I didn't have my computer with me. And so... I was staying at, I don't remember which hotel, but I needed to get internet access um, on Friday at 6 p.m. And so I had to go down to their like business center, which was down at the end of some long like concourse. And I was just in this, you know, weird little room because it's Friday night in Vegas. Like who is in the business center on a Friday (laughs) night in Vegas, right? So it's just me. And as I'm about to type in my information, I think, oh my gosh, what? what if I don't pass? Um, you know, my whole family is here and, you know, we're all here to celebrate this joyous occasion. And am I, you know, am I really going to be able to go out there and just be like the wet blanket and say, Oh, you know, sorry guys, you know, I didn't pass. And so, um, that's when it really started to hit me that, okay, you might not actually do this, but then I logged in and there was the passive, you know, the, the passive, um, information that this name appears on the pass <laughs> list. And I was like, does this mean I passed? We don't or, know. We don't, like, your name's on the list. That's all we can yeah, say. It's, it's almost like they're saying, look, there, there might be a clerical error somewhere. <laughs> yeah, and totally. so, yeah, your name's on the pass list, but you didn't actually pass. <laughs> you could have hacked the system and put your name here, but you're, I don't know. It's on the list. That's all we got for you. Yeah. Amazing. Um, Daniel, we've kept you for, I think, longer than you expected. Um, if people want to learn about you and your services, where do uh, they go? Uh, sure. Well, thanks for asking. So um, my uh, website is uh, tutoringbydaniel.com. It is a very um, rudimentary website uh, that I put together myself. Um, so you will see that unlike Ben, I do not have a background in web design. Um, but, uh, you can find me there. You can email me. Uh, my address is Daniel at tutoring by Daniel.com. Uh, you can also find me on Yelp. Um, I'm listed there as, um, Daniel's bar tutoring. Uh, people love me on Yelp. So, um, those are some, <laughs> some good ways to find me. Well, that's how I found you. So I'm glad, uh, I'm glad I did. Um, do you do any law school tutoring at all? Or is it just purely California bar prep and that's it? I don't. It is purely bar prep uh, for the California bar exam. Um, I do offer some tutoring for the performance test, which is one of the sections of the bar exam um, for other states. So for students that are taking a bar exam um, outside of California, I do offer help just for the performance test portion uh, of that exam. Amazing. Ben, anything else for Daniel? No, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, you guys. This was a lot of fun. I had a really nice time today. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks, Daniel. Hope to talk to you uh, sometime soon. All right. Sounds great. Bye, guys. All right. See ya. 
Want to move on down the agenda, Ben? Yeah. So the next email here is the one about our founding story. I guess we both talked about how we started. Yeah, I'll read it anyway. There might be some few, a few things yeah. in here we'd like to add. Uh, it says, hi, I love the podcast and the demon. Have you two ever addressed how you met, how you decided to start the podcast, and what the parameters of the early idea looked like? How long you thought it would last and how successful you thought it would be, as well as how you decided to build the demon and what was involved. Startup capital, needing to learn anything about web developing or contracting, what contracting? I don't know. Major strategic decisions, turning points around growth, etc. I'm basically interested in some founding stories. Thanks, Sophie. Yeah, well, we've we have been talking about that a lot, Ben. But anything else in there that you want to add? Uh, I think we've mentioned before, but I liked your book, LR Encyclopedia, and yeah. I wanted to add it to my growing class. And I called you and said, "Hey." Can I use your book in class? It's the best you compliment said, you yes. can ever give an author is to just start talking about their book and say you like it and want to use it. So I loved yep. you immediately, Ben. And um, yeah, we just, I don't know. The podcast came up because I had been listening to a lot of podcasts and I, I think I said, hey, want to do a try a podcast? <laughs> ben mm. is the kind of guy who likes to just sort of try you know, new ideas and see if they work and I don't know. We got good feedback on the first couple episodes and just kept going. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Capital? Uh, we just put our own money into the demon. I don't, from the, yeah, from our own I mean, LSAT company. Capital, as far as starting up my, my business. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. I was a tutor working for PowerScore and I saw how much money they were making off of my classes and I was like, hold on a second. I'm the only human that these people, these you know, students ever talk to, why don't I just make my own version of this? And so I did. I, the capital investment was, I think, you know, I think I started getting students immediately. So it was basically funded out of operations almost immediately. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I had a friend of a friend do a logo. I still use the logo on the books and stuff. Um, that logo I think cost me 250. No, it wasn't even that it was like $75 or $50 or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. I had a friend build me a website, I think for real cheap or almost free. I booked a class. I, I just posted a class for sale without actually having a venue for it. So I didn't have to pay for the classroom in advance. I just like posted, Hey, I'm going to do class on these dates in San Francisco. And people started signing up and I used that money to like actually pay for the classroom and print out materials and stuff. Mm. I've put like, Oh, that takes me back to the days when I was posting a fly. Oh my God. Yeah. I had postcards. (laughs) I sat in the back row of of law school classes and I hand wrote postcards to law firms because I thought that was a brilliant marketing plan to hand address a, a postcard to a law firm with a, it had a discount coupon on the back of it. You know what? It actually worked. I got a few of those postcards back. So, wow. um, but it was like hundreds. I had like a stack of 200 and I was just going through, I think on Yelp, actually like every law firm on Yelp in San Francisco. And I was just like huh. writing the address and <laughs> just, I think the pre the postcard was pre-printed, but I hand addressed it. Or something. Yeah. I don't. 
how, why does that make any sense? I thought a handwritten postcard would like get more attention or something, but if all your handwriting is the address, then I don't know. (laughs) It doesn't really look like a handwritten (laughs) note anyway. It still looks like junk mail. I don't know. I didn't know what I was doing. Podcast cost us nothing, right? We've like bought microphones for 50 bucks and use free software. Well, no, actually, I mean, it's turned out to be more of an expensive endeavor than we planned initially. Well, and actually we did have an editor right right off the bat in episode, in episode one, I think we had Sean, right? So that, Mm -hmm. that was, um, yeah, we had to pay him, but by that point we both had operating businesses. And so we just have funded it out of ongoing same thing with the demon. We just, we've just we, so we haven't. I haven't ever gone for a loan. Have you been? No, no. So yeah, basically what we've done is we've poured a little bit. I guess initially both of us poured a little bit of our own personal money that came from something else, either work we were doing or parents or something. I guess wherever that money initially came from, and then we're talking like a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars, and then that seed money leads to a little bit more money coming in and you're just reinvesting that money constantly. Yeah. I mean, my advice for entrepreneurs is to figure out a product that people will buy and get to the point where you're actually selling that product as soon as possible. Don't think about anything else besides selling a product, figure out what the product is and figure out how to get it in the hands of a paying customer right now. And because then you'll have, you'll have revenue. And as soon as you have revenue, then you can use that revenue to fund all of the other things that you think are important. (laughs) Like, you know, Oh, I have to make sure I get a business license or whatever. No, you don't just start doing business and then figure out that other stuff. Or like, Oh, I better make sure that I register my domain and have a website and all Well, no, you not, not really if, unless your product is on the website, but if your product is in the real world or whatever you're doing, whatever the business is, just get to the point where you're, you've got paying customers. You'll then not only will you have revenue to finance operations with, but you'll also be learning about what types of things the market actually wants. I mean, you can spend so much money, right? You can spend so much money creating a product that then who knows if people or, and like setting up all the trappings with your LLC and your business plan and your, all that shit, marketing plan and budgets and everything. You can just spend so much time and money on the planning without actually having a product. I don't know. I'm reminded of, um, or just cause I live in LA, but Quibi, have you seen the whole launch of Quibi? Did you see commercials at all for no. Quibi? They, no. they just, What's they, that? it's a Jeffrey Katzenberg thing. They spent billions of dollars. Meg Whitman is the CEO. They spent, they spent a bazillion dollars. I don't know how much money it is, but they spent so much money creating this mobile TV network, I guess on for phones. It's an app and they want you to watch short episodes on your phone. That's the whole, that's the deal with Quibi, but they just spent like a crazy amount of money on, they had Super Bowl ads and they had like, you know, this is, and that's before they ever had a paying customer. In fact, they ended up giving away the first three months for free. So I'm not sure if they have any paying customers even now, even though it's been out for a while. And I don't know, it's, that's not the type of entrepreneurship that, that I have ever done or that Ben you've ever done. I'm not even that interested in it. Like venture capital. Oh no. Well, it's weird because sometimes your ideas, 
seem so great until you start offering to them to people and then no one wants them. Exactly. And then you have some other random idea that you're like, well, would someone be interested in this? And, and, and they are. <laughs> and you're like, okay, I guess I'll make more of that. It's funny. This reminds me of when I was – before I started the LSAT company, before I started strategy prep, I was like working for somebody who had made – they wanted me to make them a website for something and I just like did it as a friend but I made money. You know, They yeah. paid me like $5,000 for it or something. Anyways, I – I remember she came to me and she said, look, I finally got my checkbook for my business. And here's my checkbook and it's got my business name on it. And I remember just sitting there like, (laughs) you're excited about this formality that has nothing to do with whether or not clients are going to hire you for your services. Like, And, you know, it was like this big to do about getting this checkbook and this website and all this stuff. Well, getting a website is actually important because you got to market yourself, but like, how much, you know, and how much are you going to do before you just start selling something as opposed to getting all your ducks in a row, so to speak? People feel that need, but you need customers. I have to have business cards. Yeah. I have to have, yeah, I have to have business cards. Like, yeah, there's all kinds of barriers. (laughs) I went to a very entrepreneurial business school, uh, Babson college out in Wellesley, Massachusetts. I did an MBA there and I, I don't think I really learned about, I don't, I don't remember learning much of anything while I was there, but I did learn that any idiot can start a business and that's a very valuable lesson. Um, if if you're at all entrepreneurially inclined, I would strongly encourage you to pursue any business. And your goal should just be to fail fast. Just just figure out whether this will work. Just try it as quickly as you possibly can. If it fails, that's totally fine because there's another idea right around the corner. And just give it a shot and see what happens. Being your own boss, as Daniel was saying earlier, we do have some anxieties. You know, if people stop buying your product, then mm-hmm. you're out of business. But for me, it's a no brainer that I would prefer to be in that boat where I control the product and just kind of control my own destiny. And, you know, if people stop buying, they stop buying and I'll figure something else out. But I would much prefer that to just um, <laughs> working for someone else who could fire you at any moment and also yeah. is going to take the profit, <laughs> all the profit. I mean, they're going to yeah. pay you for your time, but they are going to be making profits because they own the business. Yeah. Um, you know, like it's like a small law firm where there's a, a, a founder of the law firm and then like an associate. Yeah. And the two work exactly the same amount of hours or maybe the associate works more. But the founder, the founding attorney, if they're the only partner in the firm, if they're the only one that has equity ownership of the firm, they're going to make so much more money than the person who's working for a salary. Even if it's a high salary, the the owner is still going to make way more. Yeah. So uh thank you, Sophie. I, I suppose Ben, we should probably unless there's other stuff you want to say about that. Nope. Okay. How about you want to read this inductive and deductive reasoning in LR? Sure. So the question says, I guess this is 
longer than this, just a question. But should I be concerned about whether an argument in logical reasoning uses inductive or deductive reasoning? Can I give a clear answer to that right now? Yeah, no. No, you should not. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what? I don't know the difference between the two. I don't know the difference either. I was yeah. sitting there thinking, okay, uh, I know, I mean, geez, we've, okay, anyways, by inductive reasoning. We're going to learn something I'm, here, Ben. We're gonna yeah, learn we're going to learn. Okay. I'm excited. Okay. By inductive reasoning, I know that means the argument only gives some support for the conclusion, i.e. Okay, that is, means that is. The conclusion states that something is highly likely, basically, huh? The premises support This person the does not understand the difference between inductive and deductive reasoning. Either that or they're doing a poor job of explaining it. Okay, and then the person says, in deductive reasoning, the premise gives complete support for the conclusion, which is stated without a doubt. Well, hold up. The two things you just described here, an argument that has only some support for its conclusion and an argument that has complete support for its conclusion, to me, sounds like the difference between an invalid argument and a valid argument. Yeah, that's not the difference in two types of reasoning. That's just no. an argument that actually completed and an argument that did not complete. They either, they either got there or they didn't get there. But that can't be the difference between inductive and deductive reasoning. No, it's something else. Yeah. I'm almost tempted to look those words up now. He continues or she continues, in both types of arguments, you must look for any flaws in the reasoning that led to the conclusion to decide if it is valid. Well, um, in your second type of reasoning, if the premises give complete support for the conclusion, then it's valid and there are no flaws. So... We must be talking past each other. Don't you guys call this top down, bottom up? Whoa. <laughs> That's like a whole different thing. We got three different things going on here. We have inductive versus deductive. We have valid versus invalid. And now we have top down versus bottom up. Holy smokes. This is cut with all the uh, categories. Exactly. This is a real good example of why we don't need most of these semantics. We just would be better yeah. off if we did not even have them. Just don't even think about deductive reasoning and inductive reasoning. It's not important. I'm reading okay, it. Delete that from your mind. Yes. Okay. I, well, mm -hmm. I am reading a page here that gives an, a definition that seems to make more sense to me. Okay. It says deductive reasoning is a basic form of valid reasoning. It starts off with a general statement and examines the possibilities to reach a specific logical conclusion. In deductive okay. inference, we hold a theory and based on it, we make a prediction of its consequences. That is, we predict what the observations should be if the theory were correct. We go from the general, the theory, to the specific, the observations. So usually there's going to be a premise and another premise and then an inference, like a syllogism. That's a very common. You see this on the LSAT all the time, right? A syllogism where we have two premises and a conclusion. It, sound, it almost sounds like deductive is like going from the general to the specific. That's that what true? they're saying is that, well, oh, okay. that's what they said at the top, but now they're saying, <laughs> oh yeah, well, no, for example, if every A is a B and this C is A, yeah. then, then we know this C is a B. This, we know this C is a B. And I guess that is from a general premise, every A is a B. We end up concluding that this particular A is a B. So then is inductive going from specific to general? Inductive Con reasoning is the opposite of deductive reasoning. Inductive reasoning makes broad generalizations from specific observations. Basically, there is data, then conclusions are drawn from the data. This is called inductive logic. 
So we go from specific to the general. We make many observations, discern a pattern, make a generalization, and infer an explanation or a theory. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, I would suspect that inductive reasoning is more prone to being flawed because I think it's harder to go from specific examples to generalizations. Yeah, I, I, and but I can I see, see how, both being flawed. Right, deductive but. reasoning can be flawed because you can think that there are you can you can fail to recognize um, exceptions. Like, how do you yeah. know that the general premise is correct in the first place? Right, every A is a B. Well, how do you know that? So. On the LSAT, you don't have to worry about that because we accept the premises as true. But what this is going on to say is that science does both of these things to try to find the mm. truth, right? Mm-hmm. They do sure. inductive reasoning because they make many observations in the world and then try to create theories. They also do deductive reasoning because they posit theories, make predictions yeah. based on those theories, and then test to see whether they're correct. Okay. This has almost we, nothing to do with the LSAT, by the way. Nothing. So I'm going to stop talking nothing. about it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm glad Thanks. to have learned something. Who wrote in, by the way? This oh, is... a Mark. Mark. Hey, Mark. Thank you. But not important. Mark also gives a big list of flaws. It says, should I know these flaws in logical reasoning? Here are some of the flaws I found on LSAT logical on the LSAT logical reasoning section. <laughs> should I know? Okay, Ben, should you know correlation equals causation? Wait. <laughs> Should, should you, I should you know that, know that flaw? that's a flaw? Yes, you should. You should. Mm-hmm. That's the LSAT's yep. probably second most common flaw. Should you know yep. about the unrepresentative sample flaw? Yes, you should. Mm-hmm. Happens all the time. Sample yep. is too small or the sample is known to be biased. How about mm-hmm. the error of equivocation? I'm not sure what flaw that is but i am I, that means I, all that is, is when you, does have one that just means when you have a word that changes in meaning that's all that's what i was thinking yeah. that's those are actually really rare though i mean it's a very common wrong answer right so that's why you need but, to know what it looks like sure equivocates with regard to a central concept that's when you let a word shift in meaning in during meaning. the Illicitly course of your argument shift. yeah ad hominem attacks that's where you go after the person right yeah very Not common the, uh, See, I'm just not as familiar with these names. It's a correct yeah. answer, and it's an incorrect answer. Ad hominem attack mm-hmm. is when you go after the speaker rather than actually listening to their argument. Yeah. Um, circular reasoning is a really common wrong answer. I feel like we should be giving examples of these. Circular reasoning is um, every word in the Bible is true because it says right here that every word in the book is true. In the book. It says that. <laughs> So therefore it's true. That would be circular reasoning because you're just relying on it's this, your premise and your conclusion are the same thing. Yeah. An error of conditional reasoning, also known as confusing sufficient for necessary. Ben, do you want to give an example of that? Oh, sure. If you read the Bible, then you will be happy. I'm happy. Therefore I must read the Bible. (laughs) Yes. That is an error of conditional reasoning, (laughs) confusing sufficient for necessary. That's the LSAT's most common flaw. So you definitely need to uh, be aware of that appeal to opinion. Um, (laughs) By the way, Mark, your number six should actually be number one. Exactly. I don't know where this list came from. Mark just is like, here, here's eight flaws and they're not really in order. Uh, um, Appeal to opinion is, yeah, it's kind of common. I I did a survey, you know, most people, um, they want taxes to be zero. Therefore taxes should be zero. 
that argument has relied on the opinion of people whose expertise has not, you know, been shown to really be uh, controlling what, what we should do about taxes. That's what they want us to do about taxes, but that's not necessarily what we should do about taxes. They have just appealed to opinion over generalization. Sure. Mm-hmm. I guess that would be inductive reasoning gone wrong. Yep. Going from the specific to the general. Like we had a guest support. today on the thinking else that podcast. Therefore we always have a guest on the thinking else that podcast. Would yep. be an over. We had a good guest today, therefore we always have good guests. <laughs> we did have a good guest. You like that one, Ben? I knew you would yeah. like Daniel. He's great. Okay, yeah. uh, Mark, thank you very much for your email. Listeners, you do not need to know the difference between inductive or deductive reasoning. It has never appeared on that. Like those words have never mattered on the LSAT. I've been teaching LSAT professionally for. 11 years, 12 years, I don't know, forever. And I have never thought about it. So you don't need to think about it. Are you appealing to authority? I am appealing to my own authority, <laughs> but I uh, the am... authority of experience. Ben, I don't know if you know this, but I am a noted expert in my field. And <laughs> I'm, able to, I'm able to speak with authority on some matters. I want you to put that in your bio. <laughs> noted, <laughs> noted expert. expert. <laughs> I'll make it my Twitter tagline for a little while. How about that? Yeah, you know, I see your Twitter tagline in my email. My email like has pops up a little profile of the people I'm interacting with. Oh, do you see don't pay for law school? Yep. Nice. That's what it says now. Oh, yeah, I don't yeah. want to change that. I'll leave it. Okay. Yeah. Um, update from a listener not paying for law school. So this says... Uh, just reaching out and providing an update. I think I attended your SF in-person class in 2017, maybe 2018. I applied for extra time and jumped through all the hoops necessary to receive it. I, t- I don't know what those hoops are. These days, the hoops are not tough to get extra time for the LSAT. You just sign up for the LSAT and you fill out whatever their paperwork is. You might have to get a doctor's note, but I don't think it's hard. Do you, Ben? No. I mean, last time we checked, it had gone from 2% of test takers getting accommodations to 6 or 7. I wonder what it is now. Maybe 8 or 9? Yeah. 10? Yeah. I, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if it was cracking double digits. I took a job at a prominent law firm, Aiken, and have worked there for one and a half years. I took my LSAT in October of 2019, got a 163. I thought I might need to retake it because my cumulative GPA is quite frankly... Crap, 2.77 compared to my SFSU GPA of 3.4. I applied late in this cycle between January and March of 2020 just to test the waters and see if I needed to beef up my application. Okay. Not really following our advice on that. I wrote an addendum to explain the difference in my GPAs, working too many jobs, hadn't accepted loans, and included that in my applications. I was accepted to USF, UC Hastings, and a few others while being waitlisted at Loyola and Pepperdine. I was not accepted to the only school I did not attach my addendum to, University of Washington, but I think that's a pr- uh, also a higher ranked law school. I recently no, no. There's a correlation here. The <laughs> addendum caused 
acceptances. Yeah, it, there is a correlation, Ben, but uh, <laughs> correlation does not prove causation. It might suggest causation, and we would maybe want to inquire. You know, we try to. F- there's no way to figure it out unless we um, were able to interview the wa- University of Washington. Actually, all these schools, we'd have to talk to them about whether the addendum was a factor. My hypothesis, though, would be that uh, that's just a higher rank school and that your addendum probably doesn't matter. I recently accepted a full tuition scholarship to Santa Clara University, was admitted to their Tech Edge JD program, and am excited to be a part of the number four IP law program in the nation right here in Silicon Valley. <laughs> How much weight does that carry, Ben, in, in uh, your world? Nothing. Hey, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> what do you think anyone in, let's say on the East Coast, is anyone, does anyone know that Santa Clara University has the number four IP law program in no. the nation? No, it's the same problem that all these schools have when they send out their emails and they say, we are ranked 16th for writing. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> okay, so you must be ranked a lot lower yeah. for everything else. Like, why? I don't know. Yeah. You just cherry pick I mean, one thing. I will say geographically Santa Clara is in the perfect spot, right? For if you if you really do want to do tech stuff, tech stuff, then obviously being right in the middle of Silicon Valley, it does make a lot of sense and I'm sure they have all kinds of exciting connections and stuff just just based on where they are. Um I'm willing to believe that that if if tech law is something you want to work in, um I can see how Santa Clara might make some sense, but just, I don't know. It's kind of obnoxious to be talking about the number four IEP law program in the nation. Um, I agree. Obnoxious of, of them. I don't, I don't mean that to you, Sebastian. I'm sharing this in case you feel like sharing with others. And because since taking your course, don't pay for law school stuck in my mind. And I wanted to thank you for that. You, the man, Nathan, thank you for your practical teachings and awesome books. Seriously. Those books kick ass. Uh, the books are basically gone now. Everything's in the LSAT demon. You don't, the literally all those explanations are already in the LSAT demon. So thank you. If you think the books kick ass, then I think you're going to like the demon even a whole lot more. Um, thanks Sebastian PS. Any recommendations for a one L thanks Sebastian. I hope you have, I Santa Clara is a beautiful place. I, I hope you kill it there. Um, I do think that there's lots of good outcomes possible from Santa Clara. Uh, Ben, any advice for uh, Sebastian as a 1L? I would suggest finding the old exams for the classes that you're taking. This is your suggestion. I'm stealing it from Nathan. So when you say thanks, man, you can say it to Nathan. Um, But yeah, find the old exams exams for the classes that you're taking and just start taking those. You got to do your reading for class so you can participate and yada yada, but... Uh, you know, you miss reading for a week. Don't cry. I mean, your your grade is really going to come down to your exams, and your exams are really going to come down to whether or not you've tried to do them before and learn from your mistakes. Yeah, I think if you just participate, like make sure it's you have to. The participation is make it clear to the professor that you actually did the reading. Volunteer if you can, because then you don't even have to worry about getting cold called. Volunteer when you can participate as much as possible in the discussion, go to the office hours of every professor, just show your face. 
If you do that, then you're going to get the the grade bump. The grade bump is really important. The grade bump, you know, it only boosts you a fraction of a grade. But the difference between a B plus and an A minus is the difference between a 3.4 and a 3.7. And that could absolutely be the difference between getting that big law firm on campus interview you want. Because there will be firms interviewing on campus at Santa Clara, but they are not going to be interviewing, you know, the bottom of the class. Yeah. So you want to make sure you get good grades. One of the best ways you can do that is you can just kiss ass to every single professor. It doesn't have to be obnoxious. Just make sure you're participating. You know, make sure yeah. you're show make sure they know your name and, and make sure that they know that you're part of the like class community. You don't have to be the star of the class. Everyone who participates is going to get that grade bump. So just make sure you, you know, it doesn't have to be like when you get cold called, you have a brilliant response. <laughs> That's definitely not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like voluntarily participating in the class and I think office hours for sure. I also, I guess I would maybe shout out Daniel's suggestion about the resources on campus, academic, uh, what was he calling it? Academic support or whatever. Yeah. I think you might just preemptively go to those academic support meetings. I mean, if they're going to teach you, you know, how, whatever it's how to brief a case and you think you know how to brief a case. Well, I don't know. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but at least you'll be familiar with the academic support people so you can get help when you need it. Right. Like maybe the learning how to brief a case doesn't matter, but maybe the, Hey, did you have professor diamond for torts when you were a one L what do you think they're looking, you know, or just anything who knows like shit like that. Right. You, I think you can just get inside information about what the professors are looking for on their exams, which ultimately you're, your first semester grades are just going to be so important for your whole career. Cause that's what OCI or uh, that's what your summer jobs are going to be based on. Totally. The last thing I would recommend is a book we've recommended many times before, but it's getting to maybe how to excel on law school exams. That might help as well. Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. Um, you want to wrap it up then? Yeah, that's it. Uh, great show today, by the way. Um, oh, thank you very much. Thi- Likewise. Yeah. <laughs> we can compliment each other. That was lovely. We enjoyed it. I guess the real question is, did you listeners enjoy the show? If you did, leave us a review on iTunes. If you hated it, do the same and tell us what you think. Don't just hit the stars. Tell us your deepest, darkest, or brightest thoughts about the <laughs> podcast. We'd love to hear them. Um, you can also join the Thinking LSAT podcast group on Facebook. We are on Instagram and on Twitter at Thinking LSAT. Nathan is on Twitter at nfox. I like Twitter. It's at, fun. Say hi to me. At nfox. Say hi to Nathan Fox or nfox. At nfox, sorry. yeah. At nfox and make his day on Twitter. Our joint project is lsatdemon.com, and that is our only project, really, these days, I would guess. Is that safe to say? Yeah. That's all we do now. Indeed. And so that's where you can go and study for the LSAT, no matter where you are in the world, on your phone, at any point, at any time of day. And not only can you just study on your phone, you can also join us live in Zoom Every day of the week, if you do Demon Live. Anyways, we can't say enough about that. 
the podcast's uh, website is thinkinglsat.com. Uh, you can find past uh, episodes there. You can search an index that uh, producer Sarah a long time ago started, and it is amazing. We need a Sarah was, Law School update. I wonder how we that's do going. Need a Sarah Law School update. I'll shoot her. Do you know, last time I saw her on Instagram, she had cats. I don't know what's going on. Oh boy. Okay. Since then, but she's reached multiple. that phase of law school. <laughs> that phase of law school. Yes. Anyways, that was episode two forty six of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.